Welcome to episode 45 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's one and only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we have got a great show for you. But before we get to that, let's do some introductions. First up, from the land down under, our own Aussie man himself, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. What have you been up to lately, Theo? Interesting enough, I've been shooting my, my Media 7, which is very on topic for this episode. Next, from Gainesville, Florida, where the gators are large, the rockets are tall, and the swamps are huge, is Mr. Anthony Rue. What has the weather been like down by you? You know, this is our last gasp of winter. So it was around 45, 50 today. It was beautiful, cobalt blue skies. Uh, I wish I, I was out shooting. Unfortunately, I spent the day chained to an espresso machine. Uh, but I think that by Wednesday, I'm going to have the ability to go up to the Okefenokee Swamp up in Georgia with the uh, the G617 and go shoot some panoramas of some uh, Georgia swamps. And finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, the Midwest source for used cameras, lenses, filters, and 2X teleconverters is Mr. Paul Rival. Have you ever sold anything to anyone famous, Paul? You know, I did sell Anthony a camera, and I suppose that counts, though I wish he would stop mentioning that G617. <laughs> My heart still hasn't completely recovered from that <laughs> loss. Oh, it's so bad. It's sad. All right, last week was a lot of fun. We had a blast talking to Dan Tamarkin about auctions, 6x17 cameras, and a certain German camera baron. For episode 45, we're going back to a Japanese brand, the one, the only, Mamiya. With us from the City of Lights, Las Vegas, Nevada, home of MamiyaRepair.com, is Mr. Bill Rogers. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hi, nice to be here. Why don't you introduce yourself? Maybe tell us a little about your history with Mamiya, your website, promote yourself a little bit. Well, uh, I've been repairing Mamiyas now for about 40, 42 years. I started repairing them in the, the late 70s. My site is MamiyaRepair.com. Basically, these days, I repair pretty much all the Mamiya models. Um, I've got pretty much all the parts and service materials, factory tooling to uh, bring them back to specs. And, uh, awesome. And that's that's about it. Most of my uh, stuff now, I, I publish on Instagram and I do a lot of posts on there and I go through the details of the repairs, which folks like to see their cameras taken apart, explained uh, what's going on with the repair. Well, it seems like Mamiya is a hot topic as it's been with our past few episodes. We have a lot of people in the waiting room. So I'm going to start letting them in. Oh my, it's standing room only. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, can't get them in the door. <laughs> my screen, my screen's not big enough. Did we ever consult with the fire marshal to see what the occupancy is of this show? <laughs> I think the room's about as full as it can get. Yeah. Well, um, I am not going to go through the entire list. We have a loaded house. We have some returning callers. Uh, I see Mr. Cheyenne Morrison. I see Ira Cohen. I see Bob Rodoloni. I see Marcy Merrill, um, Mike Amati. Mike, welcome to the show. I've been talking to you recently, and uh, you were pretty excited to hear Mamiya. How you guys doing? Glad to be here. Awesome. Stephen Lederman, welcome to the show. Andrew Smith is back. Larry mm -hmm. Effler is back. Brian Howard, Chris Saunders. The Zoom attendance is bouncing around, so it's kind of hard to uh, do this in order, but... We have Bill Rogers here from MamiyaRepair.com. Bill's located in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, he introduced himself already. He's been doing this for over 40 years. Um, I know a lot of you guys are real excited about Mamiya. They are um, one of those brands that, in my opinion, kind of did everything. We've, we've touched upon them in the past. We've never really done a deep dive on this show before. I had a trivia question many episodes ago, I think, 
Mamiya made more 35 millimeter SLRs with different mounts than any other camera company. Uh, Nikon F mount, they made multiple prior, um, proprietary mounts. They've done variations of the M42 mount. Uh, a lot of people love their TLRs with the interchangeable lenses and shutters. You know, the big C series. Gosh, there's the 645s, there's the 67s. I got to be honest with you, Anthony, help me out. Where should we start here? I think that we should start at the beginning with the Mamiya folders. Okay. You know, because those are the ones that that probably interest me the most and uh, that I also know the least about. That's the one I just, uh, I just shipped off to you, Mike. It's on its way. Yeah. So, um, so Mike is loaning me a Mamiya 6. It's a a V, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. V, V, it shoots uh, both 645 and uh, 6x6. Awesome. And, and I just have to make a comment that across the Zoom screen, people are holding up the Ramea six folders for us to all see. So we got more than a few here that are, are, are ready to talk about that. For history, though, honestly, I'm, I'm going to go back to Bob Rodoloni here. Bob obviously is the Nikon guy, but he has told me a couple stories about the state of the Japanese photo industry immediately after the war and the challenges there was with firing glass. And Mimiya, if if I'm correct, was the first Japanese camera maker to resume production right after the war. Right? Is that right, Bob? It's possible. It's it's kind of gray back then, but it's possible. Yeah, can supposedly start up pretty early. Yeah, I've got a um a Japanese camera article from 1949 with pictures of them uh, firing the glass. So that's pretty good evidence that was very shortly after the war that they were producing optical glass, probably one of the first. Japan is an island and they have limited resources. Their infrastructure was completely decimated. The United States had a vested interest in rebuilding their industry to try and infuse some money to fix all this stuff. So um, I know that there was Fuji, there was Nippon Kugaku, and uh, who else had glass back then? Who would have been able to make cameras in 47 or 48? Um, well, Olympus made the glass for the uh, uh, that was uh, used on most of the Mamiya 6 folders. My Mamiya 6V, uh, IV, Mamiya 64 is marked Made in Occupied Japan. And it's the oldest Made in Occupied Japan camera that I've seen. Yeah. And I believe mine was 1948 or 49, maybe. Typically, the Occupied Japan labels were applied around around that time by 1950 they generally had stopped so nikon was making glass before the war and they were making glass during the war and they started to make glass right after the war because the ohi factory in shinagawa was not damaged by the war so they were able to start up right away as a matter of fact they made all of canon's glass up to 47 so all those cans that were being made in 46 and 47 were coming with nikon glass just like they did before the war so nikon's glass making ability was actually ready to go from day one their only problem was is they couldn't get some of the raw materials to make some of the glass, some of the types of glass, plus they were having trouble with power. The uh, furnaces were gas powered and most of the gas lines had been destroyed during the war. So they had trouble getting uh, reliable energy sources to, to run the furnaces on a 24 hour basis. But they were making glass by 46. They didn't make glass for themselves. Late in, late in World War II, I think it was like 1943 or 44, the Germans sent a submarine to Japan and I read the cargo list and half of the cargo was shot glass. Yes. They actually, there's actually a story about how 
They literally towed it behind the submarines, the glass, all the way to Japan. The Japanese used a lot of shot glass, but Nikon only had to get a little bit of their glass from shot. They, they were able to make their own. They started making glass in the late 20s. They, fortunately, their factory was not destroyed, so they were able to start up right away. Their problem was raw material and power, gas. So they started off slowly. But by 46 and 47, they were making glass for, for Canada already. So For anybody who has a very early post-war Mamiya 6, you can find them with a huge number of lenses. I've seen them with Fuji lenses. Um, I've seen them with, honestly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't a few with Nippon Kugaku lenses. There are. Yeah. There are. There are Mamiya 6s out there with Nippon Kugaku Nikon lenses are. Yes. That's got to be very, very rare because the, the the ones that I encounter obviously most often are the uh, Zuko lenses, the Olympus lenses. And I have my my latest one, the the Automat, which is the last in the line, was the actual the Mamiya made glass, which I think was the same. I think they were both the they were all Tessar designs, but the Zuko glass was excellent. But I would love to see one with. Uh, uh, some Nikon glass. That would be a super yeah, rare. I've never item. owned one. I've never owned one, but I have a friend in in Ireland that has one. Or I have another friend in Japan that has one. They're they're very uncommon. You can get uh, Nippon Kugaku Nikkor lenses in uh, Aries, TLRs. Yes, TLRs. We know Azahi did their lenses in the uh, Mini Sixes. Um, you know, Nikon was working when they were make when they were working on the Nikon One, the original Nikon One in forty six and forty seven. They had another camera on the drawing board at the exact same time, which was a twin lens reflex, and they already had designed a seventy five millimeter three point five lens for that camera, which of course ended up on the Mamiya's and the air reflexes. But the thing is, they had to, they had to ditch that camera because they couldn't make the shutter. They couldn't make a leaf shutter that was that was going to work. So they they ditched it. They stuck with the. Uh, uh, Nikon one, which of course used a focal plane shutter, which is easier to make. So, is there a prototype of the TLR Nikon? Yes, it it supposedly. I, I've seen the drawings. I've seen the blueprints for it. That still exists. They supposedly made two or three of them. No one has been wow. able to come up with it. No one. They, oh, they, they still be in Japan somewhere, I'm sure, but no one's ever actually physically put their hands on one. Supposedly they assembled two of them, but like I say, I have seen the actual blueprints. They had the blueprints all ready to go. So. Wow. But they had it at the last minute. They had the lens designed and everything. Like I said, the 75. At the last minute, they decided to not make it because they could not produce the shutter. And nobody was had shutters available at that time. Seiko and all those people weren't making shutters yet in 46 and 47. So they just dumped the whole project, went with the 35. That would have been amazing. Yeah, it would have been something, wouldn't it? Well, they had such great build quality on everything they made. I would imagine what their yeah. DLRs would. Have been. Yeah, they did. They they well, they were they were a military manufacturer for the first thirty years of their life, and uh, they made everything the military specs. So Mamiya's churning out the six, which they did produce prior to the war. Um, my records show they started making them in nineteen forty. So by like late forty five, maybe very early forty six, is when they started putting together models. Um, it's plausible. It was probably a lot of pre-war parts, just kind of reassembling them. We know that you could find those early post-wars with a variety of lenses and shutters. Um, but what was special about the Mamiya 6s? Maybe that was a little different than just any old 6x6 folder. Was there a feature or something that those cameras had that was unusual? Well, the most unusual thing, Mike, was that it, it the focusing was actually a movable focal plane or a right. focal plane. So instead of the lens or a helix, when you yes. control the focus, the actual film plane moves forward and backwards, right? Is that what you're right. describing? You focus, you focus with a wheel on the back of the camera 
and it moves the pressure plate forward and back. And there is a, a footage scale on the upper right uh, plate of the camera that shows you the distance where you're where you're set. And it actually has a little depth of field scale with it. Is that more accurate? Do you think that's maybe why they did that? You know, I honestly don't know. I know it's easier to produce because you're not moving anything uh, on the lens itself. It's it's stationary. Wasn't there something with the film pressure plate on those? Well, it's certainly strange when you look at it, because when you look at the back of the camera, the film goes underneath the pressure plate, of course, and it has the cutout windows. So you can, uh, on this particular model, it uses uh, red windows to for the film counter, film advance. It's uh, it's a little goofy to look at, and it does vary from uh, 645 to 6 by 6 on this model. The, the big advantage of the movable film plane is there is no coupling between the lens itself and the rangefinder, which means that the rangefinder very rarely goes out of a mis- uh, out of alignment on these because you know it's there's not that additional complexity that comes with coupling it with the with the lens. The lens never moves, and it's it's there's no uh, separate mechanism. That's a great segue into into Bill. Bill, you obviously get quite a few of these to repair, I imagine. And are they more complex to actually work on or are they more aligned more often than not and they have other problems instead? Well, uh, usually I see them with like rangefinder adjustment issues uh, or shutter issues. That's basically it. I, um, I don't see that many of them. Uh, and I see winding issues. But, you know, the, the service on those is becoming limited now because my parts are pretty exhausted for those. So... Um, I'm being real careful at taking those in for service now. Yeah, I can tell you my repair story. I got, <laughs> this is the story of my life, mint condition in-box camera. <laughs> never, ever buy one of those ever again. Sent it How to many my plus friend. signs were after mint? <laughs> yeah, sent it, this is like a recurring theme in my life. Sent it to my friend for a service, and he serviced most of my 120 folding cameras really familiar with them by now after all the weird ones I send him and he pulled his hair out doing the repairs because uh, I don't know if it was the particular one that I had or if it's a Mamiya thing in general because I had thought that they were pretty well but he um, he liked the film plane you know focusing but just repairing it was really difficult he just said that the some of the internal parts were just really poor quality steel which of course it was just after World War II. That's natural, but in the end, it just uh, the one that I gave him ended up being like unrepairable. So I never even managed to shoot my my one. And well, after the Mamiya Six, what where did we go with Mamiya? Did they go strictly, strictly to the Mamiya Flex? Uh, in 1948, they they got into the TLRs and they released their first 35 millimeter camera. the The original TLRs were just the Mamiya Flex. So they didn't quite have the C-series that we probably think of today. So that's where I, and I don't know this to be true, unless there's somebody here that knows the corporate history a little better than I did. Mamiya was highly driven by the, the Americans, the, you know, General MacArthur and SCAP, you know, they wanted to bring in money. So Mamiya, I think, was a willing partner to kind of just do what they needed to do. So they were sort of just releasing new models pretty quickly. They did the the Mamiya Flex TLRs, which eventually gave way to the C-Series. They had the 35 millimeter cameras um, in the 50s. You know, those expanded to, to weird models like the magazine, which had a, a removable film plane, or I'm sorry, a, a removable film back. 
the Mamiya Sketch Shot 24 by 24. I actually have a review of that coming up pretty soon for my site. Uh, but yeah, the TLR started in 48. Um, I don't know too much of the history of, of where they went with that or how they came to be. Because, I mean, really nobody, when you when you think of the Mamiya, the C-Series, which uh, does anybody have one they want to hold up? You know, <laughs> Larry's raising his hand. Uh, yeah, so, but so you have, if you can't picture a, a Mamiya C-Series TLR, it's got the twin lenses like most TLRs would, but instead of uh, a plate or, or geared lenses that spin, it has bellows. So the entire front of the camera can extend forward much further than on a typical, like a Roloflex could. Um, this allows you to do close-ups um, with, you know, you have extreme parallax error though, because the closer you get the lens to whatever you're taking a picture of, you know, what you're seeing through the viewfinder isn't exactly what's going to be captured on film. But those were a whole system of, uh, of TLRs where you could get uh, panoprism viewfinders. They had interchangeable lenses, which... Really, it's the entire front of the camera, essentially, because you're, you're replacing the shutter, you're replacing the viewing and the taking lens as one unit. But they're very, very cool, uh, very collectible, very heavy. You know, um, I honestly don't typically take a Roloflex as, as a casual stroll camera, but the Mamiya C-Series are, are even bigger than that. I know Mark Faulkner, you have, uh, what is this, a 330 let me borrow once before? That's a real nice one, but it's just heavy. It's extremely heavy. Yeah, I, I've tried using it a couple of times, and I just find it almost unbearably so, unless you put it on a tripod. Yeah. Mamiya, Mamiya was unusual, though, in the twin lenses, because as far as I know, they never made one with a fixed lens. Can anyone correct me if that I'm that, that is not correct? But I don't think Mamiya ever made one that wasn't well, there was a fixed lens. Well, yeah, actually, the November of 56 on earlier, they were fixed from, uh, you know, 57, the Mamiya Flex C came out. But before that, all their models had fixed lenses from like. Yeah. Did they call yeah. them a Mamiya Flex? Yeah, they yes, call it. The, the first did. one was called the Flex Junior in 48. Mm -hmm. Then they had the Flex Automat, the Flex 1, the Flex 2, uh, Automat B. They had a, a lot of models but they weren't interchangeable lenses until 57, actually. They were pretty run-of-the-mill. Uh, maybe run-of-the-mill is not fair because they were well-built, but they were fairly standard Roloflex and Rolocord copies initially, you know, with the Bay 1 mounts and on the lenses. They looked very similar to the Autocords, and then they eventually expanded into the, the C-Series where everything was interchangeable. But uh, yep. the original, original Mia Flexes, um, at a glance, they look just like an auto cord or a roller cord or, you know, a diacord. I don't know why they didn't call it a mummy cord. But I think it's fair to say that once they, they swapped over to the C-Series, though, their aim wasn't the walk around no, TLR right. that Rolleiflex was aiming at. It was, it was almost a semi-studio type camera at that point because they, they obviously started introducing the, the handle, the left-hand grip and all those kind of things as well. Yeah, because the, the, the Mamiya Flex C, which was the first of the C series, didn't come out till 57. So you got to try to remember what the Japanese photo industry in 57 was like, right? So that's the same year Nikon released the SP. The Leica M3 had already been out for over three years. Most companies were already either on the verge of or had already released 35 millimeter SLRs. So I think Mamiya kind of thought, all right, we need to do something different. You know, um, instead of 
just coming up with something that someone else had been doing, they expanded into the um, into the C series with the interchangeable lenses, the bellows, and uh, and I don't know how long they produced those for, but it, I think it was quite a while. A few years ago, I I, I had a chance. There's an elderly gentleman who was selling his gear, and he shows up with a what looked like a small steamer case, and it was a uh, a C three thirty with every single lens that they'd ever made for it with every accessory and every grip. And uh, he wanted $500 for the case. And I just, I just didn't think that I'd really would, this thing was so massive. I just couldn't imagine like wanting to shoot it that much, but uh, he had been a uh, Florida crime scene photographer. And this is what he would uh, photograph. He was sort of like a Florida Ouija. This thing had gone around with his pistol grip on the side, uh, photographing, you know, corpses in uh, Florida crime scenes. And, uh, I mean, just the, the, the vibes behind it were you know, kind of heavy. Uh, but I always wondered if, if a lot of these cameras didn't end up in this sort of like sort of quasi industrial use that, uh, you know, that, that, because his was set up so that, you know, if it was, uh, you know, somebody half eaten by an alligator hanging out of a bass boat or, uh, you know, somebody, you know, shoved in the wall of a, of a mobile home, you know, he'd have the right lens to be able to get the shot that they needed for the police. I've, I've got almost exactly the same story about a Mamiya 645 TL Pro. It was doing lens hunting and looking at the Mamiya medium format lenses. And then lo and behold, on eBay pops up the same kit, like Anthony said, but was the later version, the 645 TL Pro with the 80 millimeter F2 lens, beautiful lens. And they normally go around two and a half, three thousand $3,000 for the kit of $600. So I sent a message to the guy, I said, what's the story behind it? And he said, well, it was a school photographer who's my next door neighbor and he died and his wife's asked me to get rid of all the stuff. I said, have a look at the lens, like yada, yada. And I just took a punt and I bought it for $600 and it was all perfect. It was probably the best camera deal I got. And um, yeah, I, amazing, but really super heavy. That side handle thing is really cumbersome. You, like I put it in a bag and tried to take around doing some street photography. Just really difficult. It's a studio camera or like a... If you think of what the strength of uh, a Bellows TLR is going to be, it's it's got to be close-ups, right? Being able yeah. to change focal length is obviously cool, but that's not something you're going to do out in the field, right? I mean, nah. by, by the late 50s, the press cameras had already dominated. Uh, the role of flex was already popular. People were already switching to 35 millimeter SLRs um, and whatnot. So when you think of who might have wanted um, a TLR that can close focus, that's really where I think that they um, they really shined. You know, these were studio cameras. They probably didn't move around a ton. So like their size and weight isn't an issue at all. They were wedding cameras too. Yeah. That was, that was a huge market was the wedding cameras. Uh, yeah. Ray Nelson is in here, I, I see, uh, who I think if he if he doesn't now, he did work for Mamiya, for Mac. Yes, I'm still currently Mamiya America Corporation, although Mamiya was sold out to Leaf, who was bought up by Phase One. So uh, I miss selling Mamiya cameras. I have my hands on some pretty rare cameras. I was going to try to share some photos that I found in the office. There's a prototype that uh, looks like a Coney Omega met a Super 23. Very, very cool camera. We also have a 645J that was a 
gift to the owner of Mac Group from the president of Mamiya Camera. Pretty, pretty cool plaque on it. But uh, I sold thousands of C330 cameras to wedding photographers. Um, the the in-lease shutter was perfect for flash synchronization. The lenses were superb. Focusing, again, there's really no uh, issue with focusing because you had to do an awful lot of damage to the camera to um, have the focusing come out of alignment on that design. Yeah, there's a lot of really a lot of cool stuff. When you got to the C33 and C330, you had some parallax uh, indicators inside the viewfinder. So for a wedding photographer, part of the, the several of the big shots are close-ups. The ring shot, the the, the bouquet shot, you know, a shot of the in, uh, the engraving on the invitations. So it, the, when they got to the C33 and C330 that had the parallax lines inside the finder that really made a big difference. They're just cool. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you've ever shot any camera with a waist level finder, especially medium format for younger people who, you know, are rediscovering the art, you know, you see that life-size image in that waist level finder. And when you could actually focus closely on something through one of these, and if you have the accessory lenses, it's, it is really, really cool. And I could imagine, you know, those, those, kind of cheesy you know the bride's hands on the what the the groom's fingers and their the ring you know that like cake pictures and stuff like that so the flexibility i could absolutely see um how that would be you know appealing to people and they made a device that would move the uh taking lens to where the viewing lens was called a paraminder is that right uh, anyone who knows paraminder is yeah. correct yes it's like a little elevator column there you go. Paul's got it. Between the camera and the tripod. Another thing to note is the earlier cameras is Nikon made a prism finder for the cameras itself before Mamaya did. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Irving Penn used one of those power adjusters all the time. I can't remember which camera he used, but yeah, the power adjuster is really clever. I don't believe anybody, uh, any other camera manufacturer ever made a interchangeable lens TLR. And to me, that was the most interesting thing about the uh the Mamiya C series is that it was the only TLR with interchangeable lenses nope. that I'm aware of. Coney Omega made one as well. Oh, they did. The the Omega Omega Flex. Flex. Yeah. yeah, the Coney Omega Flex. Yeah, I shot weddings with those. <laughs> There's that Peter Goland camera. You know, we're, we're getting yep. a Goland Flex. Yeah. We're getting into the weeds though. Those are pretty obscure. The big Coney TLR though is is would be the one that I would have thought of too. But but it's it's definitely safe to say though that. You ask a hundred collectors to tell you the name of an interchangeable lens TLR. I'd, I'd be willing to bet most of them will say, you know, Mamiya. That's what they were known for. So they're obviously uh, producing the, the folders. They're getting into 35 millimeter. They're producing the TLRs, both the, 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 the solid body ones and the Bellows cameras. But then eventually they, they expanded into the SLRs, the, the medium format SLRs, like the six sevens and the six forty fives. Um, before before that though, they did the. Sorry to interrupt there, Mike. That's okay. Before that though, they went into the the press cameras, the Super Twenty Threes and the right. Universals. Yep. They're an interesting camera. I've got one right here, which is about to break my arm holding it up. Which, but, which um, one is that? This one's the Super Twenty Three. Super Twenty Three. Okay. Yeah, and they were an interesting camera because I think they were they took the the cues from the C series. Uh, TLRs in terms of size and uh, usability and try to sort of transpose it into a rangefinder to be used more in terms of press and out in the field. Um, so these are a lot more interesting enough, more carryable than the than the actual uh, TLRs themselves. But my God, th these will hurt you. These these will, um, nothing's connected. 
um, on this C23. You can shoot the whole roll with you know your your dark slide in. You can not advance it. Um, you could not pull out the the hundred millimeter lens and be out of focus. And also, but the versatility of them is unbelievable. They even have a bellows inserted in the back there where you can use the ground glass to do macro work. I mean, I think, Paul, that this is one of your favorite cameras too, isn't it? I got my first Mamiya Super 23. It might even have been a Universal in 1968. And since that date, I have never not had one. I probably owned a half dozen or more of them, but I've never not had one on the shelf. That camera with the 6x9 back and the 50 millimeter lens is just one of the great travel landscape type cameras uh, i think of all time it's just my one of my favorite cameras there's even limited uh, uh swings and tilts back there right yeah yes and oddly enough the universal they made a polaroid back for it but the super 23 the polaroid back wouldn't fit that's a crazy oh, that's interesting so you had something with swing and tilt which is what you have the super 23 but the universal had the version that you could put a polaroid back on it and never, never understood that but uh it's it's where the latches are i think yeah there was a p adapter and an m adapter correct but they never made a p adapter for the super 23 correct so bill have we have we gotten into the models you start to see coming for repair a lot yet like what's what's the most common stuff you see well you know these days i see a lot of mamiya sevens that's a real popular camera I, my shop is always full of mamiya sevens and sixes right. to a lesser extent but i still do lots of the universals uh i probably have a half dozen here and for repair with different lenses uh and of course the 645s uh, but the sevens right now are the hot camera that's okay. what everybody wants bill what about the difference between the six and the seven are you seeing any reliability differences yeah you know mamiya learned from the six and they produced the seven which has got improvements in the winding mechanism you know the six had that collapsible front lens standard and that's a, a weak point i see that damaged a lot camera gets a little bit of impact and uh causes a problem so the seven was an improvement over the six absolutely it was are you seeing now on mamiya 645s it seems like everyone i see has got some separation in the prism everyone is either separated or about to separate that's is there anything you can do with those or is it just pretty much not really it used to be i could replace the prism but uh, of course that's not an option now mm -hmm. And even if you had old stock prisms, they'd have the same problem. Isn't the problem with prisms desilvering that there was foam or some kind of insulation that was physically making contact with the top of it? Yeah, and some of and some of them absolutely. That's yeah. really because because really the prisms, whether you're talking a 35 millimeter or a professional camera or not, there's a reflective coating that keeps the light bouncing around in there, and right. that foam. I mean, for anybody who's taken apart an old camera, we all know what the crumbled foam looks like. But depending on whatever that material is made out of, it essentially just eats away that reflective material. So yeah, when, yeah. When when people say, "Can you fix a prism?" I know you didn't say that, but that 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 gets asked a lot. The Pentax K one thousands a lot of times have bad prisms. You'll see a lot of thirty five millimeter cameras. You'll see a stripe that goes right down the center of it, and that's actually the top of the prism. And it's, it's making contact with foam or like a rubber that just essentially turns into primordial goo and it dissolves the silver layer. And I mean, and, and unless somebody knows how to re-silver a prism, which I don't even know if that's possible. Yeah, I, I, my, my retract, the prism in that, I finally found a company. It's one of the last companies I think in the world that still do it. They do the prisms for submarines. 
Um, but I think it's now uh, like a year, over a year for them to re-silver the prism. It's just come back to me now. It's in the post. I haven't actually done it, but I've, I did research and go down this rabbit hole a few years ago after getting a 645 prism that has this, this issue. And there are a couple of scientific company, uh, scientific instrument companies in the U.S. and one in London, I believe, uh, that will do it. But but you have to, they will re-silver the prism if you ship it to them in the correct way. Assembling and reassembling the prism, meaning the entire assembly, you got to get the glass element out. And that is quite a challenge, especially in the um, AE and PDS uh, finders. It involves unsoldering and resoldering wires. Uh, just to be able to access it. So if you're willing to kind of do the disassembly and extract the, the optical element itself, uh, there will there are companies that will work on that. Well, Brian, on the uh, on the standard prism, not not with no no electronics and not the PD or PDS or CDS, is it taped at the top or is it is it held on with foam? Do you recall? I, I don't know. I have one actually in the back uh, that I I got part way through taking it apart to see if I could I could do this. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Because I, I see a lot of them that are taped and the tape just, uh, you know, it dries out and it drops down. But if it hasn't damaged the silver, it it seems like it should be able to be re retaped. But it's it's reached a point where it's not really probably. The silver is toast. It, you yeah. can, it's not even usable. And, and this pro probably also explains why waste level finders for those cameras that Mamiya couldn't give away back in the day when you were selling cameras because how do you shoot a vertical with a waist level finder? Now everybody wants waist level finders and they're they're selling for three times yeah. as much as they did new. On the topic of shooting a, a waist level finder sideways, if you've never watched the uh, backwards bicycle video on YouTube by Smarter Every Day, it is the perfect analogy. It's a bicycle where the handlebars are geared to go backwards from normal. So if you steer left, you turn right. Easy to explain, impossible to do, unless you spend a year or two doing it, in which case it's really not that bad. So, so Bill, um, you mentioned earlier that you got a lot of Mamiya sixes and sevens. Um, I mm -hmm. think, I think it's no secret to anybody here, Mamiya seven is the best camera in the world, and I'll fight anybody <laughs> to death on that one. Um, but, uh, but uh, what are the kind of problems that that do tend to come through on those? Well, you know, normally I see them when people buy them. Uh, they get a brand new Mamiya seven, and they say, you know, I want to have uh, it checked out. And I usually find rangefinder issues. The, the big thing is the lenses on those, the early lenses that Mamiya made from 95 to about 2000 often have separation in the elements. And uh, that's what I see on, on the early lenses from the late 90s. Uh, otherwise, uh, they hold up pretty well unless you drop them. A lot of folks drop them, break the top covers or plastic, of course break bottom covers, but rangefinder issues are probably the biggest thing. They really are holding up pretty well. You just have to calibrate them then? Yeah. Uh, you calibrate it for infinity and one meter. And then of course for vertical, usually if they get bumped or dropped, that's, that usually causes the rangefinder to go off. Gotcha. And what about uh, the electronics stuff? If, if uh, the electronics go and that's it for those cameras, right? That's, that's not really that common. Uh, oh, it really, okay. it really is. I mean, I've got a few in here that have bad electronics, but they've been water damaged. Um, so if, if you don't water damage it, uh, the electronics are probably the most reliable part of the camera, I think. I guess that's all internet hype then. Yeah, pe people get freaked out about electronics. They say, well, at least it's going to go bad. Not normally. It's usually switches or capacitors that go bad, but 
the electronics are holding up pretty well on those, I find. I've owned two sevens that have had some really serious issues, and I, I really wanted to talk about that for a second because, first of all, I want to say uh, of any camera I've ever owned, I can't think of any camera that had better optics. Honestly, and I have like a Hasselblad, the optics on those Mamiya 7 lenses is just stellar. Okay. It's unbeatable. It, it's, un it's incredible, especially the uh, the wide angle of the 40, was it the 43 millimeter? Uh, it was just yeah. incredible, you know, but I had two of them where magnetic interlocks failed. And I sent them over to Bob uh, over at uh, Precision Camera who had a Mamiya Legacy account. And after the second time repairing those, uh, twice on two different cameras, uh, and then also on one of my lenses, because they also have magnetic interlocks that fail. Um, he said that he can no longer get parts from Mamiya. And then I literally traded, I had the I had a Mamiya 7 kit with every single lens, even the weird one, uh, the 200 uh, millimeter one, whatever that, uh, the, the 250. Yeah, that didn't did that wasn't Range Rider coupled, which isn't very versatile. But I had it, you know, and uh, I traded that whole kit for uh, uh, like a Noctilux zero point nine five, and then uh, and I was done with it. I, I wanted to love them. I wanted to love them, and I paid like you know three thousand dollars or less for my first couple of kits, and now they're going for like insane amounts of money. But the electronic problems, I happen to be one of the ones that was plagued multiple times. I don't know what the magnetic interlock is you're talking about. I'm not sure what, what there's what that these electromagnetic is. interlocks that are inside the cameras that control the shutter and the uh, in, in the camera and in the lens. The, the magnets, electromagnets. Okay. Yeah. 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 They, they're well. Yeah. He called them magnetic interlocks, but anyways. Okay. They. Uh, yeah. They. They failed. Well, you know what? I, I I replace those, but not that often. I don't see them fail that often. But I I have them all. I have all the parts for those. Yeah, I'm the unlucky guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to step back one. Let's step back two generations, and from there we go back to the RB six seven. You know, which was uh, still six by seven, but fully mechanical. Are you still seeing many of those, Bill? How how are they? Oh yeah, I I see those constantly. Uh, the bodies hold up pretty well. The lenses um, need cleaning usually, but you know, we're talking about cameras that are 30 to 50 years old uh, and a lot of them are used professionally. So they've really held up pretty well, but I, I see the lenses quite regularly. The thing I see on the lenses more than anything else, the shutters are, are pretty reliable. I think as far as timing and all that, but mm -hmm. they do have a tendency to get uh, some haze buildup and I don't know, maybe I've just been unlucky, but I've seen more of those with fungus than I do almost any other medium format lens. And I, I can't really explain it, but the quality of the camera was excellent. I mean, it, it held up well under, under heavy use. Oh, yeah. Um, mostly replacing light seals on them day, these days, and that's all they need. They were built as a very versatile camera too. Mind you, I have to mention that absolutely no one has held up an RV67 to the camera uh, on this <laughs> podcast today, <laughs> which sort of, uh, I'm telling you. Got one here, I just can't are. lift it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, they, um, they are very versatile, especially with the rotating back and, and the back, yeah, the different types of backs that you can actually get with them as as well i've got i've got a full set with with you know a lot of the lenses and the things are tanks they just keep working i've never seen that fungus um 
thing uh, that you mentioned, Paul. Maybe you're buying the mint minus, 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 minus ones. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's just you know I'm in Midwest Ohio, so we're uh, we're in a hotbed here of, of high humidity summers. Anthony, Theo, is yours the the Pro S? Because when I went to the Pro, Pro SD, that's the SD. Okay, so you got the more recent, yeah. one, recent one. Yeah, I got, I got the recent one, and I've I've kind of stuck to the KL lenses apart from the 50 millimeter as well. So I've got the more recent lenses that, that can be used on the, the RZ as well. Yeah. And that took care of your double exposure problems and, yeah. and uh, everything else. But uh, yes, the original, the original RB67 was sort of like the super 23 and that it didn't have a lot of interlocks. So it would be, it was very easy to do double exposures unintentionally. Yeah. <laughs> talk the shutter and advance the film with two separate motions it was possible to, to make a merit, make an error there when you didn't know, mean to. Bill, are the, the RBs themselves, are they very repairable? Oh, I think they're going to be repairable for a long time. Um, I mean, I have every part you could ever need for them, and I'm sure some other technicians do also because they were such a popular camera. Um, I, I know back in the 80s and 90s, I had wedding photographers that had just fleets of these things. So um, everybody kind of geared up for them. and. Uh, Mamiya made parts available for them, unlike some other manufacturers. So um, I think they're going to be very repairable for a long time. I think it's brilliant that they use graph lock backs. It's amazing because that's just such a common standard back, you know, that you could, you know, you could use the same back uh, thing that you could use on my, the same back that I could use it on, on my graph lips, or on my, uh, my uh, speed graphic or my ground graphic. That's a, I thought that was great. Can you use the, uh, Graph lock backed uh, roll film holders for Graflex on a Mamaya Press 23. With an adapter. Uh, you can with, with adapters. With adapters. Yeah. The disadvantage of that is your head's too far away from the rangefinder. They don't have an extender for the eyepiece? I haven't found one. If you can find one, let me know. Because I know Graflex made one. Oh, did they? Yeah. You know, the, 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 the Super 23 actually came in two versions uh, version with the for the M adapter, uh, M backs, and the other version for the Graph lock backs. Um, if you bought a universal, uh, you could use all of them, the M backs, the graph locks backs, because the, um, they had an interchangeable adapter in the back, but the super 23 didn't. When you bought that, you had to specify either for graph lock backs or for M. M right. M on, on the universal, there were two, uh, two silver plated buttons, chrome plated buttons that you pushed in yep. and that released the adapter. That's correct, isn't it, Bill? Yep. It, the adapter came off, and you could put a, uh, a Polaroid back on there, or a yep. G adapter, or an M adapter. So uh, it was really probably the most. The word universal is probably very apt for that camera. It is, and I, you know, I never really thought about it like that. But that's tr that that's correct. The uh, the Super Twenty Three only took the M adapter, or, or the G, or the G adapter, that. or the G adapter, depending on what G backs, depending on what version you bought. Okay. Yeah, they sold it in two versions with the G or the M. Okay. Is it worth explaining what all these adapters are to the listeners? Because we've, we've touched <laughs> on these adapters a little bit and, and they, they're obviously used on the, the RBs and the um, the press cameras. If I put it in a nutshell, and this is a layman's version of it, they basically allow you to attach different backs to those cameras, depending on what type of back it is and the functionality around that back. And they can be very specific. Like I know there's a six by eight adapter for the six by eight back on the RB67 that you have to use. Otherwise you're not going to get six by eight frames, which I found out the hard way. 
but they also are interchangeable between the um, to some extent between the press camera and the the RB67. Is that is that a good summary of what what those adapters are? Yeah, the, the RB took the uh, the 120 Pro S backs or the Pro backs, and that was the same as the Graflex uh, backs, like the RH8, RH12, the old backs. But it's just when you bought the the press back the bodies, you had to specify on a Super 23 whether you wanted to use the G adapters for the Graflox backs or the M adapter for the backs that Mamiya made. The M backs that Mamiya made were special for Mamiya. Uh, they didn't fit anything else. They were their own backs. The advantage to the M backs were that you could get them up to six by nine. Yeah. Or, or you could get the K back, which was multi, multi-format. Right. The Graflex RH8 was for six by nine. Yep. That was, you could get either six by six, seven or nine. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have a Graflex six by nine roll film back. Is that the RH8? I can't remember. RH8, yeah. There's a number yeah. of frames you got was the the designation on the back. So an, an RH8 would be eight frames and six by nine. A ten would be ten frames to six by seven, or right. twelve frames to six by six. Okay. Um. So now, um, take a totally different track. Um, Mike, you were about to dive into the 35 millimeter cameras earlier before I interrupted with the, the whole press discussion and we went off onto these medium formats. Is it worth going back and exploring some of that? There's a lot of them. So I don't know that we would make sense to go over them all, but I mean, you have the highlights. Um, I previously mentioned the magazine, which looks, if you just see it sitting by itself, it looks like a pretty generic rangefinder until you realize the entire back of the camera comes off. So you can swap rolls of film mid-roll without having to rewind it. You know, you could have black and white or color and switch the slide. You can flip-flop, you know, rolls of film without even having to finish the roll. So um, that was kind of cool. Which model is that? It's called the Mamiya Magazine. It might, oh. might be Magazine 35. I had one once before. I, I couldn't get along with it, so I never actually reviewed it. But um, neat little camera. I've got one here I can show. Yeah, show a picture. Yeah, get your oh, big wow. credit card out for one of those. Yeah. There you go. Split apart. It was a yeah. German camera. Had Ad-Ox. a similar concept. Oh, I forgot the name of it now. It was an Adox. Right here. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Adox. The difference is, though, the Adox works totally differently in that the magazine is contained within the camera. So the, the Adox still has a door that swings open and then you pull the magazine out, kind of like the Kodak Extra does. Whereas the Mamiya, literally the entire, I mean, Mark, hold it up again. It looks like it's like a shell of the camera. You basically have the lens mount and the viewfinder is its own piece. And then the entire rest of the camera is, is like, it's like splits in half. Whereas the Adox 300, the magazine just goes inside the camera. Does the magazine, does it have a dark slide? Yes. It has yeah. to have a dark slide. How can you yeah, change it? Yeah, it has to. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how it works on that one. On the Adox, the key for, op- it's got a twisting key lock on the bottom. When you twist this, it closes the dark slide automatically. So it's not it's not like a Hasselblad where you have to slide something in and then not lose the, the dark slide. The dark slide is contained within the actual magazine itself. So it's pretty neat. Um, but I, I get the impression based on how rare these types of cameras are, Mamiya and Adox were answering a question that no one was asking. You know, there was limited appeal and wanting to swap 35 millimeter. Mamiya created this little guy. This is called the Sketch. So this is a 24 by 24 millimeter 35. So it shoots square image, basically robot size images. 
um, regular 35 millimeter film. One oddity is even though it shoots regular film and accepts regular cassettes, it cannot handle a 36 exposure cassette of film because it won't, it'll get stuck. Like the, the manual very specifically says use a, they only went up to 20 back then, but I think a 24 would work. But is that a rangefinder? It is a rangefinder. Yep. It's got a coupled rangefinder. Um, it essentially, I'll have a picture of this in the show notes. It essentially looks like a pretty normal Japanese rangefinder, just shorter. It's a lot narrower side to side. It shoots square images. It's got, you know, a 3.5 centimeter Mamiya Secor F2.8 lens, uh, film advance, coupled rangefinder. It's a pretty neat little camera, but um, these things did not sell well immediately. They had the unfortunate timing of going up against the Olympus pen and yeah. um, the Olympus pen obviously was way more successful. So uh, it essentially just fizzled probably within the first year of it being made. How's the optics on the lens? Excellent. Yeah, I got, I loaded in my, my all-time favorite film is uh, Kodak Panatomic X, which is razor sharp, super fine grain. Mm. I shot a roll of that in this thing. And the, I mean, literally picture the sharpest 35 millimeter lens you can and just crop the edges off. And that's essentially what the images that this thing puts out. So it was a small camera, but it, they did not skimp on quality. It was, this camera cost significantly more than the pen did. I want to say it was over double, um, you know, 24 millimeters. So you didn't get quite the economy of, of half frame. And that's called the, it's called the Mamiya. It's called the Sketch. Sketch. Yeah. Speaking of half frame though, they did actually do a half frame camera, Amir, the, the Mirapid. That's rapid cassettes though. Yeah, it is, but it, but it is a, a half frame. So right. they, they sort of were dipping their toes in all sorts of areas when they were doing that yeah. kind of thing and, and going for squares and half frames and so on. So, but that, I mean, this is an interesting little camera as well, but it's, it's not rangefinder. It's not a rangefinder. Probably Mamiya's most infamous 35 millimeter cameras of that era would be the leaf shutter SLRs, the Prismat series. They made a dozen variations of the Prismat. Um, it came in a whole crap load of lens mounts. You could get them in the exact amount. Um, they made uh, a version that had a proprietary lens mount with a weird bayonet. There's a version of that, that camera that was made for Argus. There's the Argus SLR is just a rebadged Mamiya Prismat. But once again, they made a whole new lens mount just for Argus that no other camera ever made. A, a variation of the Prismat became the Nicorex the Nikon's leaf shutter SLRs, they made a, just, they, they had a whole bunch of different variations of it. I'm, I'm forgetting a couple there here, but. The, the Ricoh, the Singlex? Was the it? original Ricoh Singlex. Yep. That's another one too. So um, they, they pumped those things out, made a bunch of different kinds for different people. And, um, and then eventually they got into focal plane SLRs. Uh, one of the ones that I really liked was called the auto XTL, which was a fairly advanced early 35 millimeter SLR, it could do spot metering and averaging. Once again, its own proprietary lens mount. Late last year, I did a review of the Mamiya ZEX, which was part of the ZE series. And the X meant crossover auto exposure. You could pick any combination of exposure you want unless the camera disagreed with you and it would just override whatever you picked. So um, it was probably like an early version of like program AE, or at least their, their take on it. I mean, they just, they tried so many different things, you know, between the, the press cameras, the, the medium format SLRs, the, the, the 23, the range finders, 
um, the, the TLRs with Bellows interchange, the 16s. Yeah, I didn't even touch upon those. I forgot about that. Mamiya made 16 millimeter cameras too. Theo's got one. Um, I know, Bob, you got a bunch of Mamiya 16. Yeah, I've got a couple of them here. They're, um, it was, they, they seem to sort of, you know, once they started, you know, in any sort of camera, they just started variations after variation after variation. So they, they kind of try and do it. Yeah, they're, they're nice ones, Bob. <laughs> See that yeah. too. I've even got the one that's I even got the one made for Steers. It's the exact same camera. It's called a Tower. So they made it for other people too. So yeah, I'm holding my uh, my Tower 10D, which yeah. isn't working. I, I bought this one on Etsy, and I, they ended up giving me my money back and saying keep the money because it's the the levers locked. Uh, it, it was a special camera to me because the very first 35 millimeter camera I ever owned when I was 13 years old was a Tower 10D, which I got for. Uh, 20 bucks from a friend of mine and I used it to shoot yearbook for a while. So I bought this for nostalgic reasons and uh, maybe I'll send it in to get it fixed one day. Uh, uh, who knows? Did you check the self timer on that? There's is there a self, there's a self timer on it. I don't think there's a self timer on it. I don't know. There? But every time I get a camera with a jammed shutter, I try the self timer first because a lot of times that's what's wrong with it. No, the, the shutter levers you could see is, is uh, the, the winding lever is locked. I can mm -hmm. unlock it by taking the bottom off, but then when I wind it again, it locks again. So I don't know what the problem is. Is, is that the same as the, the rank Mamiya? Yeah. Is that the same camera that was sold in the UK? This was, this was sold by Sears, the Tower 10D. Yeah, it looks very similar to the, the rank Mamiya, which is a very um, unfortunate name for a camera. But it's got uh, a great it, rangefinder patch, you know, it's hmm. really nice. But... Here's a bit of obscure Mamiya trivia. Um, Mamiya made the uh, Prismat NP, which has the Exacta, the Ihegi Exacta mount, right? But another prominent Japanese lens maker produced a lens for Mamiya using the Exacta mount. Who was it? It rhymes with Shmanin. <laughs> with what? <laughs> Canon. Canon. Oh, Canon produced an exact amount lens. Yep. It's called the OM. I don't know what that stands for, but it's not Olympus. It's an OM 50 millimeter 1.9 lens in exact amount, but they made it for Mamiya. And uh, Peter Deckert, everybody, I, I love Peter Deckert's Rangefinder book, but less common, he actually made an SLR book too. Unlike the Rangefinder book, it's freely published on the internet. You can Google it. I have it on my site. But the SLR book has a lot of cool trivia in it. And from the story I remember is that in the early 60s, a lot of Japanese companies were still struggling with distribution. Poor distribution is the number one reason most Japanese companies like Aries and Miranda failed. Um, but at the time, Canon and Mamiya had the same U.S. distributor and obviously had some kind of agreement. So Canon made a lens for Mamiya, but using the exact amount. Hey, Mike, I yes. got an interesting Mamiya camera that not too many people have. Would you like to see it? Sure. Uh -huh. Is that a gun camera? Yep. Oh. So it's like a little pistol. Okay, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't go out shooting that these days <laughs> you wouldn't believe the problem i had getting this thing through customs oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what film does it take on uh it's 35 millimeter half frame oh wow so i would have thought that had been like 16 yeah so did i well, is it got a model what's the name on it i think it's just called the mamaya police gun oh okay <laughs> another piece of trivia and i think bob might know the answer to this one we haven't really talked much about the 645s yet but when you look at the lenses on the 645, 
the meter coupling uses a, a bunny ears, which to me look awfully like a like the. It's ones exactly that, the same thing. That sounds like a good story, Bob. Well, Nike kind of patented that, of course, in the early '60s when they came out with the, with their first. Well, actually, in '57 they patented it because they were planning on having meters. But me, I had a special relationship with Nikon. A lot of people don't know about the two owners, uh, the guy, Mr. Mamiya, he actually knew most of the people at, at Nikon. And that's why they ended up making the Nicker X F for Nikon. Nikon didn't make it, Mamiya um, factory did. But also when that the M645 first came out, I had one. And I, I picked it up the first day I got it. And I look at it and I'm looking at that lens prong. It's exactly like the Nikon lens prong, which they had patented. So they had to, he had to get that permission to use that, and he did because they were on good terms. He did other things for Nikon, too. They had a lot of stuff they worked on together. But, yes, that Mamiya 645 has the Nikon meter prong on the top. Absolutely. By the way, if anybody wants to see that Mamiya pistol camera, it's on page 648 in McCowan's. Which which edition? The most recent? Um, well, 2005, yeah. Since you brought it up, what's the, what's the latest on the newest version? I already, have you heard anything? Sure. It's coming any day now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh great. That that sounds imminent. <laughs> Get your orders in while you can. <laughs> yeah. The reason I ask Ira is Jim McCown spent, what, three days at your house? Yeah. Three days. So a, a good portion of the cameras that you see in Jim's guide are Ira's. Or in the new ones. Yeah. I, I, I can't, We did a segue into the 645s. I know that's a pretty popular one, too. I'll admit, I, I only have the one, I have the M645, an earlier one, but, um, you know, neat camera. It's essentially the same concept as like a Hasselblad kind of design, but, you know, as the name implies, 645. So you're getting a little more economy out of those um, rolls. I, I have both the 220 back and the 120 back. So um, when I do stumble upon some usable 220 film, that's a good camera to use it in because it's like getting... 30 actually i think you only get 30 images yeah yeah it, it, it rips you off it uh, it only does 15, 15. on the uh, yeah on a 20, yeah you know you can by the way if you if you want to use the 220 back with 120 film you literally only have to remove move one little tiny piece in the camera i've been doing that mike it's uh yeah it, what it does it keeps the counter from going forward exactly it, wor it works perfectly and I mean, it's, it literally makes no difference. So question for Bill about using 120 film in a 220 magazine is there's a difference between the 120 film not having backing and 220 film, oh no, 120 film having backing and 220 film not having backing, which means the pressure plate difference of the focusing to the film plane should be different. Correct. The, the pressure plate is slightly different. Correct. Uh, exactly. You know, you can use it and people do it all the time. It's, it may be a little heavier winding. Okay. If you're putting the uh, 120 film and a 220 back, but but you can do it. Sure. You know, I actually checked that myself, and first of all, it made no difference in the uh, in the in the image for sure. But also, the pressure plate has like a spring on it, right? It actually takes up the slack properly. So it's it really, uh, honest to God, it made no difference whatsoever that that I could notice when I was using it. Yeah, that, let's step back one more generation then into 35. We have talked about the Mamiya 500 and 1000 DTLs, which were pretty much every man cameras back in the, the early 60s. That Well, the, the 528 was fixed lens, and then the 500 and 1000 TLs were the M42 mount through the lens metering. This is like a, like a, a Spotmatic only every man's camera. Generic Pentax. 
Yeah, they came out in May of uh, 66, the TLs. Okay, the, so the TLs in 66. Yep. Then the DTLs with the multi, with the uh, spot and averaging metering came out uh, about two years later. Yeah, October 67, the, the DTL came out, uh, the 1000 DTL. And then about four months later, the 500 came out, the DTL. And and those were distributed in the U.S. by Ponder and Best. Mm-hmm, correct. In those days, which was Vivitar. It became Vivitar. Right. It, it, actually, the, the rarest of those cameras is the 2000 DTL. Oh. Uh, they made about a thousand of those. That's it. How many people are, are going on eBay right now to see if there's any? Let's see. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of them. 950, 145. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a I've got a couple of them. They're kind of interesting cameras. Um, Are they all black? It looks yep. like they're only black. Yeah, they only made them in black. So they went to a two thousandth of a second. Yep, that's okay. the only difference. Yeah. Oh. I've got another piece of trivia regarding Mamiya lenses. You'll notice that a large number of Mamiya cameras, all the way until recent times, would be labeled Mamiya Secor S E K O R. And for the longest time, I never really knew that that Secor name had any relevance but if you go back to our earlier discussion about the Mamiya 6 we talked about how they came in a large number of uh, shutter and lens combinations Um, if you go on camerawiki.com there is a page credited to a guy named Dirk H.R. Speneman who has done a pretty good job of showing all the various differences between the pre and mid-war models and there's like eight or so different lenses from Neocons, Tokyo Kogaku, Similars. We know that Olympus uh, had Zwicko lenses. We talked earlier about Nippon Kogaku lenses being on Mamiya 6s. I've seen one with a Fuji lens. After the war, the Zwickos were very common too. There is another lens type that you'll see on a few of them that says Setagaya Koki Sakor. And the origination of the name Secor comes from a factory that in 1947 Mamiya purchased to build their own lenses and their own shutters. So Setagaya Koki was owned by Mamiya, but they, I guess, operated as their own company or, or entity, I should say. And they would produce Secor lenses. S-E-K-O-R is short for Setagaya Koki. And in 1963, Setagaya Koki was officially merged into Mamiya, and they just became one company themselves. But that's why you'll see a huge number of Mamiya cameras from the old folders to the 35mm SLRs to the TLRs that will have lenses that say Mamiya Secor. Secor was originally a factory called Setagaya Koki, but it eventually became the brand of lenses that Mamiya used for a large number of their cameras. You know, there's some companies like like Nikon that they had a particular market. You know, uh, Lights has a particular market. You know, there's certain companies that, you know, if, if they did more than one line of cameras, they stayed in their lane, though. Whereas Mamiya, I think, was just like, hey, we'll do everything. You know, they'll... They were they were game for everything. Uh, they even did rangefinders. I I couldn't quickly grab it, but oh, that's right here. They had the super deluxe. Um, I know Ira has the better version of this one with the one point five lens, so you could get them with a one point five, a one point seven, and a two. It's just a fairly standard 
Japanese rangefinder, but you know, fixed lens. So you can't actually swap the lens. You could just buy it with different combinations of lenses, but it's one of the few Japanese cameras that could be had with a F 1.5 lens. And all the aerodynamics of a brick. Yeah. It's very, very heavy. It's, it's about the same size as the Yashica Lynx, the 14, very, very big, but excellent optics. I mean, in terms of the company, like the ethos, like what you were just talking about, Mike, Mamiya really reminds me of Konica. Like they would just throw stuff at the wall. They'd make weird things. If it didn't work, they'd just get rid of it. And they'd try and find these niche markets and then try and expand in these niche markets. They came up with some really, both of them really weird and interesting cameras. And and they kind of, towards the end, they both kind of uh, went down similar routes and like becoming, you know, the Mamiya kind of ended up becoming more towards the pro market than the consumer market apart from the SLRs what you're talking about so it's really interesting with all the different Japanese camera manufacturers they all have their own kind of ethos and to me Konica and Mamiya kind of similar in terms of not being afraid to take risks. Something that's unique about the Japanese camera industry that today sounds completely bizarre like today Sony and Nikon and Canon and Panasonic, those companies are not going to help each other out. Chevy and Ford, they're not going to like build things for their competitors. But back then, the Japanese camera industry, everybody was helping everybody. Nippon, Kugaku, Nikon made the shutter for the first Canon camera. They made lenses for everybody. Azahi made lenses for everybody. Olympus made lenses for everybody. In fact, Probably a third of Japanese camera makers at one point was an optics company that made products for somebody else, Fuji, for example. And Mamiya kind of took that to the next level. They were willing to work with anybody. You know, they had that, that agreement with Canon. They obviously had multiple agreements with Nikon, with the, uh, the Nikon, the Nicker X, and then what Bob talked about with the, with the bunny ears. You know, they, they had Fuji lenses on Mamiya 6s. I'm sure there's many other examples of this, but, you know, back then it, it wasn't out of the ordinary for two Japanese or multiple Japanese companies to cooperate with each other for the betterment of the industry. And, and I, I think that's at least partially why they kind of were doing a little bit of everything. You know, they kind of just wanted to get their name out there or help in any way they can. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of guessing here. I don't know if, if, is Ray still here? Yeah. Here's a fun fact for you. Um, one of the founders of Mamiya America Corporation, his name was Henry Froelich. Henry was the person responsible for getting Konica imported into the U.S. right after World War II. So that's the interesting fact is um, they both were asking about the market that they wanted to sell into. So they relied upon... It, it made me smile when, when the, the, the comparison of Konica and uh, Mamiya were, uh, you know, similar companies they have in the USA anyway. Um, and I'm, I'm convinced they were relying upon advice from what the market would bear and what the market wanted. And Henry was a remarkable person um, that really launched, again, launched Konica and was a success for bringing Mamiya uh, into America. For the, for, you know, the pro series, for sure. The early on, he had nothing to do with, but uh, perhaps he was a thorn in Konica's side at that point. We were talking about about Henry before you uh, before we started, Bill. Oh, yeah. yeah. Henry was a remarkable man. He was a good friend of mine, and and uh, he was one of those guys that you just always like to see him because 
he was he was really a, a link to the past of the photo industry in the U.S. I mean, he absolutely, absolutely. He was very. He formed a partnership with Berkey, right, in New York. Yeah, he did. Yes. Yep. Yeah. He was president of Berkey. So you would see, like, when you look, because I love, I know Cheyenne does too. I love looking through old photo catalogs from the fifties and such, and you'll see a lot of Konica stuff in like Willoughby's and Peerless. You know, they were, Bob, we've talked before about how in the Midwest, I'm in Indiana, in the Midwest, there was still a a lot more anti-Japanese feelings towards this kind of stuff. So you you wouldn't as likely see Japanese brands in Chicago or St. Louis, but on the East and West Coast, a lot of these importers were much more open to uh, bringing in some of those brands. So um, I think a lot of people who shopped at Willoughby's and Peerless that was probably the first time they may have heard of or seen Konica. With uh, with Mamiya going into the this you know the medium format and obviously being the professional type of camera, um, Bill, you mentioned on your site that you will not work on the six four five autofocus. What what's the reasoning behind that? Reasoning is lack of parts. My parts are just about gone for the AF series. Interestingly enough, the AF series six forty five was the only series that for service required a special computer program and jigs to connect to the computer to transfer data. Um, That's the only one. Now I have that equipment, but I don't have the parts, so I can't do it anymore. So I'm assuming that's also true with the Mamiya ZD, which was their first digital camera failed in the U.S. market. Yep, that's correct. Was a ZD, was that a leaf back? It was a leaf camera. Yes, it was oh, a leaf. Whole, yeah, whole yeah, camera. Whole, it, was, it was an integrated camera, so. And what, what lens mount? Uh, it was Mamiya. It was Mamiya 645. 645, okay. All right. It was much smaller than having the camera with a leaf back hanging out the back of it and then a battery back. It was a pretty It was a pretty neat system. Um, it was like a really fat Mamiya 7, think about it. And what was the, four, what was the sensor size, do you recall? Oh, uh, just under 645. Okay. 1.3 1. crop factor, so. But that was big for the day. Yes, it was. That was actually a big sensor. Yeah, it was. Can I use the AF Mamiya lenses on my Pro uh, TL? Will they fit on here? This is the this is a um, you know the the manual one, the uh, Pro TL, and I'm just wondering the AF lenses would they fit on this one? It does. You, you cannot. It, okay. it, there's no aperture control either. So okay, thanks. You can reverse that. You can put your manual focus lenses on the AF body. If I'm mistaken. Yes. Yes. Correct. Thank correct. You. And I have to comment. Bob, I'm impressed. You've got wearing the Mamiya shirt and everything today. Um, we're going to need a picture of that for the feed later because that, that's actually real commitment. I've been really impressed with the the accessories that listeners of this show have brought. He's got his shirt there. One of my favorites was when we did the Minolta episode. A guy had a, a Minolta disco record. Um, yes. Which, <laughs> so there's a lot of really cool ephemera that's that's out there. I even have. Um... The uh, Ilford, the with the warm tone papers, and they they produced a CD, and it's got uh, four different uh, pieces of music on it. So sometimes when I'm in the dark room, I could put in the Ilford warm tone CD. It was a jazz sampler. I have it in my, I have it right here in my, uh, yeah. my cabinet. My first Cedar Walton song was on that uh, on that CD. Uh, Ray, do you remember the Mamiya T-shirt that they did for dealers that had it was black and had a uh, 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 I would I would even say it was she was scantily clad. I would say she was basically unclad on the front of it. It was, had a it was a black t shirt with a purple lighting. Yep. 
Oh boy. If I could follow Was up. it Nancy from the Miranda ads? <laughs> no, this was this was later than that, but it was uh, it was a it was a very interesting t-shirt and I could have sold a lot of them if I could have got them. But, uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, mine my wife found it in my archives and decided to uh, throw it away. The only thing I have left that's kind of cool and I actually I'm away on business. I was in Cincinnati this weekend and I live near Cape Cod. Um, hope to be back by the end of the week. But I have, it's a little fuzzy bear sticker that says, I love Mamiya. It's from the 60s. I have one left of those. It's, it's kind of like the cool little chotskis, if you would, that have no value. But uh, yeah, it's kind of fun, you know? I've got one of those too, Ray. <laughs> okay. I'm bringing it back from scantily clad women on Bridges and so on. Mamiya, Mamiya, Mamiya. <laughs> one thing we um, we did talk about 35 millimeters, their SLRs and you know half frames, and, but they also produced a series of compacts which are quite popular these days and, and hard to get hold of. I, I've got a Mamiya U here. I've got both the autofocus and the um, non-autofocus model here. The non-autofocus was a bit of a almost a bit like the um, Olympus um, the XA A two XA. Thank you. So it's a bit of a, a competitor to that. And um, it, it's a great little camera. They made, they made that in a silver version, I think. With the... That's the autofocus. It also came yeah. in red, didn't it? In red, yes. Yeah. yeah, I've seen them in red. There was an accessory for that camera too. Wasn't it Marcy? Did Marcy have the accessory for that she camera? She did. Yes, uh, that's leading go. into that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted to see. Hold it up, Marcy, so we can see it. And then we got to get a picture of it. It's legs, right? It's hands, a lot of hands. Okay. And little feet turn and it makes it tilt up and down. <laughs> I know. And then you pull the little soles off the feet and they hold batteries, a spare set of batteries. Cool. Oh, that is cool. That's the whole idea. I mean, it's not very, yeah, wow. How come I can't just tilt it up and down myself? I guess I can't. <laughs> yeah, but it's not nearly as cool as that. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, that's true. And then it's got a little flip on the back, like for your belt or whatever. And it's, you know, it screws into the tripod mount and it fits the camera perfectly. So it was made for this camera. Want to trade for a t shirt? So yeah. I, I can't find it. I found one on the internet for sale for $888.99. And I didn't buy it, but I wanted it. They called it Hand Sam. And I don't know if that's what the person selling it called it or if that's the name. So I'm going with Hand Sam. I, I that think that that was probably designed so that you could get your kids to look at the camera when you're taking their picture. Maybe. I'm sure that that would do because, you know, I can imagine kids are like, what is that? You know? Now, Marcy, I've got a question for you. With your Mamiya U there, yeah. is, the, is the shutter button intact? No, it's, uh, it works, but it's the typical. You know, the red is on, but it totally works. Yeah, same here. They, they seem to all have that problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, other than that, it's great. Maybe you should ask Bill if he's got spare parts on those. Uh, I've got most parts for the Mamiya U, believe it or not. <laughs> really? Ooh, yeah. I might be hitting yeah, you up on that shutter button. Hey, Bill, I got, a, I got an off-the-cuff the, the question for you because I never got the answer, but when we, when we discontinued... Mamiya, um, did you buy parts directly from us or did you buy it from a secondary source? 
uh, when was this? After 2014 or? Uh, I think right around 2014. Yeah. Well, I have all of Max parts, the 35 parts. Okay. The other parts I bought through, uh, I didn't buy them anymore, of course, through after 2014. Sure, sure. But I bought them through secondary sources. Of, the uh, the reason why I asked is because that was about the same time frame. We actually moved warehouses to a yeah. bigger facility. And the parts warehouse is about as big as a average grocery store now. Mm -hmm. And the amount of Mamiya parts we have were, was just massive, just unbelievably in what we had in stock for parts. Just incredible. Think about all the cameras uh, over the years on, on every model and uh, the amount ordering from Japan. Just more curiosity. I'm never going to go out of the office. I've got those parts now in my storage unit. Cool. Uh, and they're in boxes that are written in Japanese and they're oh, really... Yeah. And they have a half inch of dust on the boxes. Oh, oh and, for sure. Uh, I haven't inventoried them in years, but yeah, I, I do have all those parts, unfortunately. Well, so. <laughs> hope springs eternal, as I say. <laughs> yeah. So since you, you brought up sort of Mamiya's demise, um, it seemed like it, it, the first leg fell in like what, 83, maybe 84. The company went bankrupt. They ended like all 35 millimeter production. That's why the U really never made it much past that. They stopped making SLRs. Um, I think by then they weren't doing the TLRs anymore. And then from that point forward, they focused on just the RB67 and um, what, the four, the 645s? Is that right? The 645, the RZ, and but then they're soon after um, dealing with uh, adding digital backs on with, with Leaf. And then they got invested with oh, Leaf, yeah. the direction, or even think about the values going back 10 years ago on what, a 645 was worth or a Hasselblad was worth, I, you couldn't give them away and looking to see what the values are today. Uh, okay. I even joked with the owner of Mac Group and said, maybe it's time we have a reinvent and you know have one of our partners in China remake a manual 645 camera. And he's like, you're crazy. This is a fad. And I, I yeah. literally, I fully believe that there's a market for a brand new $2,000 mechanical camera that doesn't have to be made as well. That's a topic that comes up constantly. You know, we've yeah. discussed it on this show. What would it need to be? How expensive could it be? You know, because if it's too cheap, then it's just no one's going to, you know, it's not going to be Correct. a serious Correct. camera. If it's too expensive, it's unobtainium, you know? Like is still in business for a reason, aren't they? Yep. Yeah. I, I've, I've been friends with Bellamy Hunt in Japan yeah. uh, over 10 years, and we dipped in and out of that like process of like making a new mechanical camera and I like I got in touch with like a whole stack of like you know camera companies and basically that all died off except for the real high-end stuff and the cheap stuff's all made in China and like the problem is I think we've discussed it on Mike's podcast once before we're talking about repairs and camera companies like we talk like Mamiya, they would have like had a production line running and so they could set aside a certain amount of people and it's all the machining and tooling. It, like it's incredibly expensive to make all the little bits and bobs of a camera. And when you've got a, what often they did was they take little bits and pieces for another camera, incorporate it all together to cut down. But when you start from scratch, like a mechanical camera, it's just incredibly expensive. I think, I'm not sure if it was Mike's podcast when they made the reproduction of the 
the Nikon S3, you know, the rangefinder, the classic mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. that was like incredibly expensive because firstly they had to make all the machinery and then they had to get all the old technicians how to put it all together. That kind of gives you an idea of like why it's just so difficult. The, the actual knowledge, the people who knew how to make all the little bits and bobs and the machinery and everything has just kind of disappeared. For the amount of demand right now that exists for film, whether you're talking 35 millimeter or medium format, whatever that number is, part of the, the biggest obstacle, I think, towards their need coming out with something new is that all these old cameras still work. And they last forever. It's going to be a really, really tough sell for me to consider spending two grand, let's just say, on a brand new Nikon, let's say they were to come out, let's say they came out with an FM4, let, you know, or whatever. Uh, and let's say it cost two grand. Or I could just pick up a used Nicorex or, or Nicromat, I mean, you know what I mean, for, for 50 bucks. So I, I, I know that's apples to oranges, but for the people who just want to casually shirt, shoot, there, I think there's still too many options for the classic camera. Uh, you're right. On I, uh, I envision that uh, it's going to be, it's going to be, I can't really see in any large amount. I mean, you certainly, you have Leica that's still producing cameras and very nice cameras. Um, well, that's a boutique. They're a boutique. You yeah, that's a boutique item, yeah. yeah. But I think what, what's going to probably happen is, and this is what I'm, you know, uh, what I'm envisioning is that you're starting to see a, a lot more, or like for example, things that were there that were unrepairable. You're starting to see a lot of Asian places now that can, like for example, fix like uh, the electronics on contacts P T series cameras, T threes or something like that, which you know were were unrepairable at one time. I think what's going to happen and. You know, China, for example, you have them make Light Lens Lab, for example, those companies, they're making really high quality uh, Leica M glass. I think somebody in China, for example, is going to probably say the market's probably big enough and maybe start making parts again for some of these cameras that exist today that are, you know, where, where parts don't exist. Because you're right, Mike, there are still millions and millions and millions a very well-made cameras on the market, but the issue is is parts, right? And I think that yeah, there could be right. a market for parts. Sure, I agree. I also get annoyed with um, the argument sometimes where someone will say, well, Nikon, Canon, and others are still making cameras. Why can't, it wouldn't be hard to just adapt it and make a film back on those camera design. Yeah, yes, the machinery is there, but to actually readjust that machinery takes millions of dollars worth of R&D and design to actually even adjust existing machinery. So producing something new completely for a market that is also flooded with a lot of used equipment that works just doesn't make any economical sense no. in a lot of cases. Well, I'll give you a really interesting thing. Fuji wanted to get out of the film business. Their Instax film... Like, they wanted to get rid of it. Bellamy and I, we were trying to buy their peel apart when they were going to get rid of it. And in the end, they just said, no, we don't want to, any, we don't want to promote film anymore. We're actually going to destroy the machinery rather than sell it to you. They wanted to get into other things. And the Instax film, despite their best efforts, became like this huge phenomenon and they had to keep producing it, but they didn't want to. So even something that does make them money it's seen, at, film is seen as an anachronism and like they just see that as like going backwards. 
Yeah. I think it's going to take somebody who's got a real bit of vision, you know, like Doc Caps, who who, re who rescued Impossible Project. There's very few people that have got the the nous, the money that can see it to like create something like to create a new film camera. There's been a few efforts recently, and they've all, despite the best intentions, not been successful. The only thing that that's really done really well is that the, the they're making the cameras, like the 3D printed cameras, it can fit the old lenses on. And that's a really cool idea. So you can give, the, at least the lenses will still have like a second lease of life. Well, no, I, was, I was thinking about what Ray was just saying about coming making a, a, a 120 SLR. Mamiya at the end of the line, one of the last cameras they made in the, the 645 series was called the E-camera. And it had a fixed prism that was like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. The, uh, the prism had a tube that came off the back of it. It was not interchangeable. It was a fixed prism. Uh, it was very, very simple. And I think it retailed with a lens for $11.99. So it was, it was quite reasonable considering, you know, back in that day. Sure. Those cameras, I, I could see them coming out with something like that. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was inferring to, was like, a, like an e-camera. Yep, something that, that would use, because there are so many lenses out there for the Mamiya 645, so many lenses that, you know, are with the, with the uh, prism issues on the 645 cameras now, uh, I actually think that would be a saleable product. Yeah. Um, that, that sort of kicked off thought here too, Paul, the reusable lenses, those press lenses are being used in almost every 3D printed camera that's coming out recently the panoramics well on all, all, a lot of them the uh the chroma cams and all those uh, the the thing is that they really only work well with the wide angles because they're not any kind of rangefinder focus so the wide angles are the ones that they primarily fit though yeah i've seen some that will take the 100 millimeter lens. what's the panoramic camera that uses the mimia wide angle lenses yeah uh, uh what uh, dora goodman dora goodman that's right yeah, Dora Goodman, I know you could buy many cameras um, and then you just have to have your own, you know, lens and shutter. 65 millimeter. That's it. That's the one I was thinking of. Yep. Well, the Chroma, Chroma makes one that's actually a six by 12. Yeah. And, and it'll, it'll, it will work with the, uh, the 50 millimeter Mamiya press lens will actually cover six by 12. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. We're at the hundred minute mark. Um, we still have quite a few people here. We've lost a couple, which is completely understandable. Is there anybody that has any questions that didn't get a chance to speak or, or ask that they wanted to bring up regarding Mamiya or, or I guess anything? I have a weird camera to show. Go ahead, Steven. It's a 3D world camera awesome. modified with 55 millimeter uh, Mamiya lenses so that you could shoot wide angle stereo. That's Holy cool. Cow. <laughs> What's that called? It, this was the uh, 3D world camera that they, that um, was made in China in uh 2008 2009 and originally it had 80 millimeter uh chinese planar copies Holy and cow. yeah so actually i have an original one here too it's <laughs> well i'll just grab it real quick we'll have it well steven you're gonna have to send us a picture of that okay so here's here's the original one with the chinese planar copies so what some of us started doing was to get a wide angle version we would take the uh mamiya lenses from from the uh, C series. So this is a uh, 55 millimeter lenses. These uh, 
these boards were were uh, made by a guy named John Thurston, and then you'd get your own lenses to fit. So let me describe it real quick. This thing is a huge triangular shaped camera with, is there a waist level finder on top? Uh, you, it, it will actually fit all the um, Hasselblad accessories. So okay. you can put a Hasselblad uh, waist level finder or a prism. And this is the original prism. So you have right below the prism is a viewing lens. And then below right. that are twin taking lenses. So it, it, it looks like a triple lens. Uh, I, in fact, when you first held it up, I thought it was one of those turret cameras, you know, where you right, yeah. rotate it. But that is neat. Wow. Yeah. I also inherited... Uh, one another project that's only half done i'd like to find somebody that could uh complete it somebody siamese uh two mamiflexes <laughs> <laughs> and they tried to make it so that uh this one knob would would uh, advance the film at the same time between the two but it doesn't quite work so i just stick with the uh the other one with the uh with the 3d world one one of those sold at the OC, uh, ohio camera collectors auction last year Oh, yeah? I think Igor bought it. It was brand new in the box. It was the only one I've ever seen. Right. Very yeah, cool. I still have the box and all the uh, the mounting jig and all that stuff downstairs. Yeah. It, it was really funny because when you originally ordered those, those 3D World cameras, the only payment they would take was Western Union. <laughs> so like, and that's like the biggest scam in, that's going, right? So the, somebody in China is telling you you have to send a couple thousand dollars via Western Union, oh, right? Wow. And then your money's gone and you just sort of wait and hope that it shows up. You brought up the Ohio auctions and for my own personal uh, curiosity, Ray, did the Konica sell? Uh, I, I chose not to sell it yet, but okay. I've got 20 people in line waving big numbers and okay. I don't know if I'm going to sell it. I'm, I'm having second thoughts that I might want to hold on to it. I'd really love to do a review of that one. So uh. <laughs> yeah, Cleveland was interesting. Cincinnati was a really good show. It was, it reminded me of a show 25 years ago. Wow. It was very well attended. There were people buying, selling, trading. Everyone was happy. It was a really, it was really a, uh, a good thing. We did a great flex episode two back and it, it I wasn't there cause I wasn't, I was sick and we had the highest number of listeners of any previous show. So uh, the first episode I don't, show up to is the most popular uh, i know paul didn't go to this show too so maybe maybe his absence no, i'm just kidding <laughs> oh yeah i was looking for him that's okay mike go ahead ray told me what a great show it was and igor called yesterday to tell me how, how much what a wonderful time he had and how he he spent a lot of money with ray and, and it was yeah. just wonderful and it was so sad that i wasn't there I don't want to say this, but I'll say this because he's a great guy. Igor came up to me and said, uh, oh, crap, the banks are closed for tomorrow. He, he ran out of money, and that's almost impossible. I felt really good. He was all set for the next the next day, though, but that's something for, for a person. You know, He's a professional buyer, great guy. Now, in person, I've known him now for 25 years, and I don't think I know one person that knows as much about everything. He knows just about everything. Of every brand, of every format, of every condition, and you're gonna get him on the podcast, Mike. Well, it's funny because the last time I saw him was at the Chicago show, and I was wearing my Camerosity podcast shirt. And he walks up to me. He goes, "Oh, that's Paul Reibold's podcast." I'm like, "Yeah, it's Paul." <laughs> <laughs> um, Nick Marshall, I don't think we've heard from you. Do you wanna? Do you have any questions, or are you just uh, a fly on the wall here? Oh, um, I'm just a big Mamiya fan. I mean, I, I got 
into the medium format cameras specifically because I love uh, pack films so much. So I got the universal because it shoots a uh, full frame pack film. And then also the RB67 because it shoots most of a full frame of pack film. And one of the, one of the interesting uh, backs, I mean, there's RB67 is kind of a special ca camera as far as instant film shooters go um, because uh, there's so much room on the back because the rotating adapter gives you, you know, a bunch of room. So it's been, it's been able to, uh, people have been able to adapt quite a lot of different instant backs for it. Like uh, you can get an in Instax square back for it. You can get an integral back that shoots like 600 or SX-70 film. Uh, one of the backs that's very cool for that is um, made by Arca Swiss and it shoots half of a frame of pack film and then you slide it over to the side and then it shoots a second half of it. So you can actually get two kind of vertical rectangles, uh, this, it's like a sliding double exposure back. So that's, there's, there's quite a lot of interesting Polaroid uh, backs that that's mainly what I got into the Mamiya cameras for. Hey, Nick, with the RZ 6x7, they also made a Quadra back that shot 7.2 square. Yeah, that that one uses kind of, that quad. one uses like a larger like a it's kind of like a 545 sheet yeah, film sheet, back. Sheet film, yes. Yeah, so so then you're using kind of well these days that that film is quite a bit more expensive so I never got into those. I think there 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 probably I think there was a quadra back for the RB67 also. No, this is RZ. Huh, this, okay. RZ. I, I shot a ton of 55, a ton of 55. Uh, which is the positive negative film for the negative. Yeah, but the as far as cost wise, I never even looked into that because the pack pack film was always cheaper than the four by five sheet film. And um, for something like that, you would maybe shoot six six five uh, pack film. Yeah, no, there's a there's a lot of like a lot of the Polaroid people that I know, or you know, people are very enthusiastic about instant film. Uh, got into RB six sevens even nowadays. Uh, Policon just over a week ago, I saw a lot of people with RB67s with uh, different kinds of uh, instant backs on those. Cool. All right, well, thanks for coming on, uh, Nick. Real quick, Mark posted in the chat on the Magazine 35, the dark slide automatically closes when you unlock the magazine. So similar to the ADOX. So much information, stuff that I didn't know. I love the history parts of it. I love hearing the stories, having Ray and Bill here and sharing your stories. You know, Bill, was, was there anything else you wanted to talk about or quick anecdotes that you think are worthwhile? Uh, no, I think I've had as much fun as <laughs> I can handle. <laughs> can I plug a show? Camera sure. show? Sure. Oh, the uh, local camera club are the Puget Sound Camera Collectors Society here. They're having an April 1st at, in Kent. Where are you at? In Kent, it's in Kent, Washington. Sorry. Kent, Washington. Okay. Sweet. Awesome. Well, anybody listening in Kent, Washington, are you going to be selling there or just buying? Oh, no, neither. I'll, I'll be helping out. All right. This just in from the Camerosity Podcast News Desk is breaking news. With us on location is Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, everyone. Hey, look, it looks like there's some news coming through on, on the package. Yeah, Anthony's back on the line. What, what's going on, Anthony? It, it's it's a camerosity miracle. I'm absolutely flabbergasted. Um, today, some kind couple uh, apparently found the box with the superb had fallen off of the mail truck and was sitting on the side of the road in the rain, uh, smashed up. The box was smashed up and uh, it was barely legible that it was to be delivered to Volta. 
but after a, uh, almost a month, uh, 22 days, 21 days, they came by and just dropped it off with the baristas and said, I think this belongs to you and left. They wouldn't even accept a latte in gratitude. They were just so kind and nice to be able to bring it back. I mean, it, it literally fell off the back of the truck. So it was just sitting there on the side That's of the road? A, as I understand it. And and certainly looking at the condition of the box, which is soaked through. You can see that the cardboard is rippled from it being soaking wet. The contents inside were completely drenched. Oh, that sucks. So the cameras are Well, that? I was worried about that, but luckily... Theo is the king of shipping cameras. Hail to the king, baby. And he has learned his lessons over the years. And inside this rather large Australia post box was a smaller box that also had bubble wrap. And inside the bubble wrap was an industrial freezer grade Ziploc bag. And inside the Ziploc bag was a Voigtlander Superb packed with little desiccant packets to keep it dry. <laughs> and somehow that inner box survived a month just being battered by the elements and i'm scanning negatives now and they look superb good on you theo so you double boxed it you put the superb in a box and then that box wrapped in what was it wrapped in you said more, the more, styrofoam? more bubble wrap more bubble wrap don't forget around that little box was twisties tim tams vegemite uh, vegemite <laughs> and, ah. and i think some some violet crumbles i oh I, I think you owe it all to the vegemite yeah that's what i would think if you slather anything in vegemite it can survive that <laughs> i mean i'm sure that all the candies and all got soaked but they're still in their original packaging and and none of that was compromised wow uh so no fire ants in the in the uh twisties <laughs> your staff tried to offer the people free coffee and they declined yeah, they just they left. just were like i wow. this just belongs here and they left and and i don't know if anybody had tried to open the box i mean the one end was completely burst open and somebody had sort of half-heartedly wrapped it with masking tape to sort of keep the end from falling off um and i, I don't wow. know if that was the post office i don't know how much of the damage was done before they felt before it fell off the back of the truck because you know it was sort of lost without tracking in the u.s post office system for what was that three weeks for it to cross the country three or four weeks yeah. across the country. Yeah. So, Hey, you finally got your superb. That's but, awesome. I mean, it was a weird story, but for it to just show up, like, let's say the post office found it, that would have been great, but this is a way cooler story. It, it is. It's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. There's a lot of good karma behind this. And on top of that, just did an absolute spectacular job on fixing this thing up, you know, looking into the, the, the ground glass, it's, it's, it's as bright as pretty much as my Rolleiflex is. And, uh, you know, I love it's got the little tiny mirrors that with the backwards number so you can see the uh, shutter speeds from above in the right direction. And, uh, you know, I just ran a test roll of some macros on it, uh, tried all the shutter speeds, tried all the, the uh, aperture settings, and I got 12 out of 12 shots out of it. Wow. Cool. So the camera is in perfect working order. No issues with shutter, no, no issues with the aperture, no issues with the film transport. All right, let's see some scans. Pictures on the website. I just literally scanned the first frame while we were talking. Cool. So I'll have the I'll have scans up tonight and uh I'm I'm just this is such a happy solution to this rather <laughs> terrifying nightmare. Um and you know, like I said, the uh the post office still thinks it's lost. So I, th I think I'll let them sweat that. Let them think uh, it. I'll let them sweat yeah. that one out for a bit longer. See if they want to come up with a resolution. Yeah, I mean, realistically, they didn't find it, so it's still true that they lost your package. That hasn't changed. They, they so. absolutely. I mean, the frustrating thing to me is that in Gainesville we have a regional post office that's a, like a distribution office, and it's five blocks from 
the delivery address. It's three blocks from yeah. my bakery. I can I can almost see it from my second floor window. And, and they they scanned it in, and then it just vanished. And wow. and the you know I had pretty extensive discussions with the uh, with the carrier, and her take was that that if it was on the truck, it absolutely would have been scanned, and it absolutely would have had a signature. So wow. the fact that it was neither scanned nor signed for. It just it just fell off the truck, literally. Well, Anthony, I'm glad you got your camera. Uh, you had wanted one for way before even oh. you know Jess got her hands on this one. That was like your that was like your white whale, and for it to have gone through this story, plus the money you had invested oh, yeah. in it, you know, to begin with the CLA, the shipping, all that. So a uh, happy ending. Absolutely. It's a yeah. crazy, crazy story. It's been a camera that I've been you know trying to land one now for probably five or six years. And uh, and for it to end up like this, it's pretty amazing. Stay tuned for the next Camerosity Miracle. I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, this is the 45th episode of the Camerosity podcast, and it's taken us this long we have done as good of a job as we possibly can delaying the inevitable, um, something that I didn't think would ever happen. But for our next show, we are going completely digital. We're going to have a, a digicam, a digital camera, digital everything. So we're going to try and do no film. There's a good chance that that won't happen, though. So I guess we'll have to see. But we're going to have a, a guest robot Theo host is going to try and keep us in line and shoot electrodes <laughs> through the zoom through, uh, you know, to keep us in line. So we're going to record episode 46, April 3rd. That is two days after April Fool's Day, by the way. Uh, but we're going to be doing a digital show. So um, anything, whether it's uh, the point and shoots, whether it's digital mirrorless, whether it's vintage digital, Theo and I are both working on full reviews of two very old DSLRs from the 90s. I'm pretty much done with mine, Theo. Where are you at on yours? Um, not done. Let's just call not it. Done. Not done. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll talk about some vintage digital, maybe some some of the old uh, video disc cameras. Who knows how that's going to go? It should be fun, though. After that, we have some ideas for shows coming up. Uh, I definitely want to do a Konica episode. Um, I really want to talk about Yashika one of these days, too. Uh, anything's on the table last week we or two weeks ago we just talked with dan tamarkin about auctioning cameras and just what's going on there does anybody have anything else they wanted to point out before we leave uh, i just actually wanted to say that i'm really looking forward to your review of the mamiya 6 because for many cameras that you've reviewed you've actually become the definitive source for the information you know between you and ken rockwell it's you know pretty much you know where i go to when i want to find out anything uh in depth about a camera because you go into so much history and the Mamiya 6 it's really hard to find information about them you really have to scour the internet and there was not much written about them even though there's so many of them still available and they're such amazing cameras quick funny story about that when I bought the uh, Mamiya 6 folder for the first time mine has this extra uh, sorry it's on this side this extra lever that was not in any of the manuals on Budkiss yep you not find a single post about it anywhere um, and ultimately, yeah. I found a video in, in Japanese that demonstrated how you click that to start the automatic uh, stopping for winding. You have to do it after you've already lined up the first frame with the red window. So it's a it's a difficult topic if you have a weird one. And especially yeah. if you have the like the Mamiya, the, the Mamiya 6 uh, V, 
which is an automat that has two different uh, counters on it. That's nominally um, what this is. Yeah, it's it's uh, and, and Mike, when you get it, if you can't figure it out, because I know you're pretty scrappy, um, but if you can't, please contact me because um, it takes a while to figure out sometimes how to get those things operational because uh, it's hard to find a manual for for any of those cameras. Also, pro tip: loading the dark slide or the uh, the film back plane in upside yeah. down is not a I've good done idea. That before. Although you will still get photos. <laughs> it works surprisingly well upside down. So I did all the, I did all the research for my article. I just need a working copy of a Mamiya 6 and I might be able to publish it one day. Awesome. I'm looking forward. Cheyenne has some pretty good articles too. You just, you do about one a year though, so. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not, I, I can't match your standard buddy and the podcast. I'm like, when do you get to see your kids? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is great. Fascinating. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, everybody who joined. Uh, Bob's still here. Andrew Smith, Brian, Greg, Ira, Nick Marshall, Marcy. Always good to see you. Chris, Ray, uh, Mike Amati, Steve uh, Lederman, Mark Faulkner, of course. It's always good to see you. Bill Rogers. Uh, we lost Anthony, a few other people, too. So until next time, uh, we will see you. Good night. Good night. Bye, bye. everyone. Bye, bye. Thank you. Super. It's haunting visage. It's lightweight, but don't get greedy. It's delicate curves. Speaking of delicate, it's also mostly plastic. Its detachable backs make it where you can be indecisive, loading multiple color and black and white film rolls, depending on what you have and how much money you have. Same with the lenses and other stuff that does things. For photography mostly, it's uh, um, uh, uh, mostly intuitive. Then a hand model can put it together. It's like an infinity gauntlet of amazing features. Look at that bright screen. The Mamiya 645 Super. It will haunt your dreams.